take your Bibles again to Numbers chapter number 11. We're going to back all the way up to verse number 1 now. We're going to just kind of work our way uh, through a good portion of this chapter this morning. And so, uh, you know, to, to understand what God is getting to when he uh, says in verse number 23, And the Lord said unto Moses, Is the Lord's hand waxed short? Uh, thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. Uh, you can almost sense the frustration in God's voice towards his people and towards Moses uh, as he says that. And so if it's possible for God to be frustrated with us, uh, I know it's possible for him to be angry with us. So I would assume that that frustration would kind of build into that. Uh, and so we're going to see this morning what leads to uh, God's statement and how he is uh, at this point with his people. And he's providing for them. Now, the nation of Israel here is on their journey. They have left Egypt. Uh, they are making their way to Kadesh Barnea. Uh, and so they've been to Sinai, and now they've moved on. They've not yet come to the point where uh, Moses sent the 12 spies into the land. So they, uh, at this point, are still on track to leave Egypt according to the will of God and to enter at a very early time of their journey into the promised land. Uh, they are not at a point yet where they have showed a lack of faith to where God has said, all of you are going to die out here. If you're 20 years old and older, then you're, you're going to die in the wilderness. You'll not enter the promised land. Uh, we've not gotten to that point yet. And so uh, what's going on is that they are making their way across and already, even at this early stage, they're complaining. Now, on the one hand, it's easy for us to sit back and to look at Israel and to cast stones and say, how could they have witnessed what they saw in the plagues that brought them out, how they experienced the parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of their mortal enemy in Egypt? I mean, you have to understand, God used those plagues to utterly destroy Egypt economically uh, and to break the will of the people. And he utterly destroyed them militarily whenever he drowned their soldiers in their chariots in the Red Sea. Uh, they had no wherewithal to come after Israel at this point. God had broken them completely free from what had enslaved them. And so they're on their way across. And there's some other problems along the way before we get to this point. Uh, they immediately are turning to another God at Sinai. They've moved beyond that. Uh, and so now here we go. So Moses to this point, you have to understand, he, for 40 years he was uh, a prince of Egypt. And then for 40 years he was basically a shepherd. He was out on the backside of a desert uh, He had a, with, with his family. And that was essentially his life for uh, 40 years prior to coming to this point. Now he has started the last third of his life, the last 40 years of his life, and he is leading these Two plus million people and listening to uh, the the weight and the complaints of what they've got to say and how they respond to things. And so you have a group of people that have been essentially for 430 years slaves who have been liberated. You have a man who knows what it's like to lead in the place that they came from. But after 40 years, it's kind of a distant memory. And now he has been encounter, has an encounter with God. He is sent back to lead them out. 
And it's all been a lot of drama and excitement to this point. Drama in the, in the fact of, hey, I've got to confront a king. I've got to deal with the people. Now normalcy is kind of weighing in. Now the reality of, uh, of at least the, the state of journey is upon them. The people are getting used to Moses. Moses is getting used to the people. The excitement of the plagues and the flight from the flood or from, from the Red Sea and all of those things is in the rearview mirror. And now the daily routine is set in. And so naturally, what takes place is a lot of complaining. Because that's what people do whenever we get into just a normal situation or what's a new normal for us. And so that's where we pick up here in chapter number 11. And notice in verse 1, And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it. And his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them. Now, if you are a person who has a complaining spirit, take heed to what that verse just said. They complained, and it displeased the Lord. Now, you could argue that some of the things that they're complaining about are legitimate concerns, at least on the surface. But just the fact that they issued a complaint, God doesn't address here whether it's a legitimate complaint or an illegitimate complaint. The fact is, they complained, and it displeased God. So the next time that we want to step up and complain... We need to realize that complaining displaces God. That's not the response that God wants from his people. Now, uh, as we continue, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. And when the people cried unto Moses, and the people cried unto Moses, and when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. And he called the name of the place Taborah because the fire of the Lord burnt among them. That's what that name means is a burning. Uh, and so when we look here, what we see is we see the people are complaining. They're complaining. They're, they're not liking what God has chosen for them. And really, that's the, the, the reality here. They are in the will of God. They are not at this point facing 40 years of wandering because of their disobedience. They are in the perfect will of God. They are transitioning from slavery to an abundant life. They're transitioning from, uh, from being lost and having no relationship with God to having that relationship birthed in them and to being taken to the place that God has promised them and a place where they will fight some battles but uh, where God's blessing will be upon them and they will fulfill what God has chosen for them to do in short order. But here they are. Instead of being rejoicing that they have been set free from slavery, they are complaining because they don't like what they have to eat. And so it's not like uh, their complaint is, uh, their complaint is a complaint, let's be honest, that we all can understand. I mean, just stop and think about it for a minute. If you had to eat the same exact thing, even if you could fix it in different ways, for multiple weeks and multiple days on end, uh, and it was the same thing that you were being given to eat, uh, we would all get tired of that. So their complaint's not a hard thing to understand, and it's, it's really something that we uh, should struggle to judge them harshly about. Uh, but the reality is, is that it shows us what happens to us when we lose sight of what God has brought us from and where God is trying to take us. 
And so when we uh, when we are trying to get where God wants us, then God is uh, we accept that God's working in our heart. So the people are complaining. Uh, not only are the people complaining, but they're complaining. Uh, the, when we look at what they're complaining about, they're complaining about their food. Notice verses four through nine. And the midst multitude that was among them fell a lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? They've got manna from heaven. They're eating manna, angels' food, and they're uh, complaining because they don't have flesh. We remember the fish, which we didn't eat in Egypt freely, and cucumbers, and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away, and there is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. Now, I'd be complaining about what they're missing. I mean, if I had to eat fish every day, I'd, I'd be complaining. I don't like fish. I wouldn't be wanting it. I don't want any part of it. I don't like the smell of it. I don't like uh, the texture of it. I don't, if it lives in the water, I'm not the least bit interested in eating it. Uh, my wife can eat it a little bit, but she gets really interested in the garlic because she's a garlic eater. Uh, and so she likes uh, those things, and we like the other things there, and we, uh, we cling to those things. And so we understand their complaint. In verse number 7, And the manna was as coriander seed, and the color thereof was the color of bedelia. Now, in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 31, we have the account of God first giving them the manna. We don't take the time to look over there, but he says essentially they're the same thing. In other words, their response when they first received this manna from heaven was that uh, it tastes like honey. It's like, and they said in Exodus, it's like wafers made of honey. Uh, but notice the change in attitude in verse 8. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills and beat it in a mortar and baked it in the pans and made cakes. Uh, and it was as the taste of fresh oil. And dew. And when dew fell upon the camp at night, the manna fell upon it. And so now that they've been eating it for a while, it tastes like grease. Uh, that's essentially what they're saying here. I, I preached about this. The title of the sermon was Honey Grams of Crisco. Because when they first got God's blessing, when they first received God's blessing, it tasted like graham crackers, like honey graham crackers. Hey, this is pretty good stuff. But after a couple of weeks, this is like grease. This is a pastor, but it's fresh grease. Yeah, that sounds real appealing too. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, you know, that, that old can of grease that's sitting there in, a, in an old coffee can or an old hot chocolate can waiting to go into the trash can, uh, you take the lid off that thing, it can be pretty stout. And you can get pretty excited about throwing that thing away and getting it out of the house. Uh, and, and there's nothing appealing about it at all. But I'm just going to tell you, uh, you know, when I make some cornbread or uh, do something else that requires some, some mazola, uh, we get ready to fry some chicken or something of that nature. I know I'm not supposed to preach about that in quarter till 12. But, uh, but <laughs> uh, when we get those things, uh, hey, man, it's great for use, but I wouldn't want to eat it straight. So they're complaining because they've gotten tired of and what once was appealing to them is now loathsome. So they're complaining about food. <coughs> Notice their complaint. <laughs> we should have died. We'd be better off about food. We'd be better off if we would have just died in Egypt, is what they say. Verse number 10, and Moses and the people. And then Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, and every man in the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Moses also was displeased. And Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? And wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou layest upon uh, that layest the burden of all this people upon me? Have I conceived all this people? Have I begotten them? 
that thou shouldest say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom as a nursing father beareth the sucking child unto a land which thou swearest unto their fathers? Which should I have flesh to give unto all this people? For they weep unto me, say, Give us flesh that we may eat. I am not able to bear all this people alone, because it is too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee, out of hand. If I have found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. This is what Moses is saying here. The people complain about the food, wishing that they had died in Egypt. Moses complains about the people. And Moses at least recognizes that his attitude is not appropriate, that it's not a good spirit to have, that it's not helping the situation. But his response swings just as far because now is he not only is he complaining about the people, but he's complaining about his life. And he's just saying, God, kill me. So you've got Moses leading people saying, God, if this is the way you're going to deal with me, and if I've got to deal with them, kill me. And you've got the people saying, if we have to eat with this, and if we have to deal with him, kill us. And it's really kind of a, a humorous but harsh circumstance here. None of them uh, had the right spirit. No one has the right attitude. Everyone is complaining and no one is praying. So, Pastor, but God, Moses was talking to God. He wasn't praying to God. He was complaining at God. There's a difference. He wasn't going to God seeking a solution. He was complaining. Now, God gives him a solution. God's going to solve his problem. Uh, God is going to, uh, in his anger, cause some problems for them. They're going to face a plague. They've already faced this burning. Uh, everything is not going to just be uh, easy, uh, but it reveals some things about them. And we see this morning really four things that complaining reveals. And this is still introduction this morning. This is not getting to the message just yet. Uh, but four things that I want to point out about complaining. First, complaining reveals a lack of confidence in God. And what's the real problem here? I mean, they're just several days, maybe a couple of weeks into their journey, if, if more than that, certainly not much more than that. <laughs> they're, uh, they haven't been out there for a long period of time. Uh, what is their problem? They, they, don't, they, they yet have gained confidence in God. The God that brought ten plagues to set them free. The God that parted the sea and destroyed their enemies. The God that has provided for them up to this point. The God that dealt graciously with them when they rebelled and made it a false idol. When you stop and you look at the things that God has done, and yes, there's been some harshness in some of the judgment, but by and large, to the vast majority of the nation, he's been very gracious to them. So what do we see here in their complaining? Well, what we're revealing is their lack of confidence in God. God you, you can't provide for us like we think we should be provided for. And then that starts to get a little bit closer to home. Okay, now we're starting to get a little bit more where we can kind of make some personal application into our own lives here. Uh, have we ever got to a place where we looked and said, God, I deserve better than this? And it's easy to look and to criticize them, but the reality is, is that they are simply revealing to us ourselves. We've all been there. We've all done this. If we, uh, if we think that we haven't, I would say that we've probably done a good job of deceiving ourselves. Because I don't know of anybody that hasn't gotten to a point where they complain about things. Uh, I'm not exempt. I do it too. 
But what are we saying when we complain? God, you're not enough. God, I, I trust me more than I trust you. God, you're not doing this the way I think it should be done. Second thing we see is that complaining calls into question God's love. We're complaining because we don't like what God's given, but God in his love for us has given us everything that we need. So I begin to, in my complaint, say to God, God, I don't think you love me enough. God, we, we don't think that you're providing what we should have. The third thing I think that we see here is that complaining reveals a selfish nature. Complaining reveals my selfish nature. I want what I want, and I want it when I want it. And that doesn't define our present culture. I don't know what does. It doesn't matter what part of what, where we are generationally in the midst of that culture. Uh, we all tend to like the fast food availability of things. We like drive-through technology. We like drive-through food. We like drive-through everything. And there's not too many things that you have to wait around for uh, much anymore. If you want to, you don't even have to go grocery shopping anymore. You can just uh, you can just plug in an order online and go, and they'll bring it out and load it in your car for you. That's not for me, but my my children they'll love it. I just I just I just like picking things off the shelf myself. I don't like going when it's crowded, but I like going to get what I want to get. And the reason part of it is, is because I always get more than what I need, and I get the things that I like, especially if I can get in there without my wife. I get the good stuff. What do we complain about? We complain because we're selfish, because we want what we want. We want it when we want it. We want it how we want it. Complaining. God gives us what we need. Complaining reveals who my trust is in. See, if I really trusted God, then I would sit back patiently and wait on God, and I wouldn't have anything to complain about. And so we see that revealed in their character, but we also must understand and realize the fact that it reveals to us our own character. And if we're not willing to see that, then God's going to be hard, it's going to be hard for God to help us grow beyond that. Notice that what God says, that ultimately God's response is, Is the Lord's hand waxed short? Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. It's reminiscent of Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God will supply the needs of his people. God will supply the needs uh, of his ministry. God will supply. So the people got, questioned God's ability to provide. Moses questioned God's ability to sustain. And God responds, watch and see. Watch and see. Because God is God. Three, four things this morning to get down to the body of the message. Number one, uh, the things that I believe that we see here uh, in this text and on down throughout it, and we'll, uh, for sake of time, kind of move hastily through here. Uh, but number one, I would say this morning that God shows us that he is able to provide. He is able to provide. Why? Because he is going to provide them with what they're asking for, essentially. Their complaint is, we're tired of the manna, we want some meat. Now, I can say amen to that. I like my meat. Uh, and so, if it, honestly, in my house, if it doesn't have meat, it doesn't constitute as a meal. Okay? It's a requirement. We can have meat without vegetables, but we cannot have vegetables without meat or no meal has been produced. And so here they are. Uh, and he says, 
uh, as he goes through this in verse 17, uh, Moses, Moses is dealing with the burden of leadership. Now we're going to get bogged down in that this morning because it's really not the message. But what God says to Moses is, I want you to bring people out and I want you to spread out your responsibilities. Essentially, it's a lesson from God to Moses in dealing with his people about delegation. You're taking too much on yourself. You can't do this on your own. I didn't design you to do this on your own. You need to invest in your men and you need to let your men invest and handle these problems and that way you only have to worry about dealing with the major problems that come up. And you just lead them and you invest in them and you guide them. There's a tremendous uh, passage on uh, on leadership and burden bearing and uh, and going going about this. And so but this is, I, I find this quite humorous as well, as God tells them that he's going to give them flesh to eat in verse 19. And he's telling them about bringing the quail. He said, ye shall not eat it one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty days, but even a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and be loathsome unto you, because that ye have despised the Lord which is among you, and have wept before him, saying, why came we forth out of Egypt? And so as they complain, God says, I'm going to provide for you. And he does provide for them. As we look down uh, and, and see uh, through the end of the chapter, he brings in the quail. And they go out and they gather it. And they eat it until they're sick of it. And then he sends in a plague to drive home the point that I don't like your complaining. So what do we see here? We see that God is able to provide. Well, what is God able to provide? Well, I believe if you look at the entirety of their saga this morning, uh, that we see that God is able to provide eternal life. Because what he shows them when he leads them out of Egypt is I'm taking you out of the world and I'm crossing you through the sea of sin and I am, I am setting you free from the bondage of your sin. And I am bringing you and drawing you to myself. And, and God is able to provide eternal life. Listen, why is that important, Pastor? Because it's important that we know where we're going to spend eternity. And I'm just going to tell you this morning, if you're trusting in a church or if you're trusting in a religion or if you're trusting uh, in some significant historical figure uh, that to save your eternal soul, then you will spend an eternity separated from God, burning in a lake of fire. Not because that what, that's what God desires from you, but that because that's what Confucius and Catholicism uh, and world religion and Hinduism and Buddhism lead to. Because it's all about what I do to earn eternal life, and eternal life cannot be earned. It is a gift from God. The scripture could not be more clear. And I'll say it, I've said it many times, I'll continue to say it. Religion is a mechanism of Satan to condemn people to hell with false hope of doing deeds. What we need is a personal relationship with a Savior that gave himself to us for us on Calvary's cross. The focus is not about being a church. The focus is about having a relationship with Christ. Now, I'm not minimizing the importance of the local New Testament church. It's vitally important to our Christian life and to our success and to our growth and development. But listen, our focus is not upon uh, being a great church, but having a great relationship with Jesus. He's able to provide eternal life. No one else can provide it for you. I can't provide it for you. Church can't provide it for you. Jesus is the only one. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's amazing. People will throw verses at me all the time and, or, or throw theological concepts at me. And I'll just, you know, hey, here's a verse. 
Somebody will come up and say, hey, well, God chooses who goes to heaven and hell. Uh, everybody's predestined. But, you know, I have a real hard time. I only need one verse to just blow that away in my own heart and mind. But God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That, that's, that's the end of the story for me. Amen. And that's not all the verses that there are that teach about it. Amen. But that's enough for me. I mean, I don't, I don't have, you don't have to, I may not be the sharpest tack on the wall, uh, but, but you don't have to beat me over the head too many times with what's so obvious in church. Amen. And what I'm saying this morning is that it's so easy because the whole world believes that if you're just good, I read something, something was a, it was a tragic story about someone whose life was cut short and they sacrificed their life for someone else. And the, all over social media it was, oh, that person's certainly in heaven. And I'm thinking, you don't have the foggiest idea about what it takes to get to heaven. I'm not discounting that it was a good person. I'm not discounting the bravery of the heroic act or sacrifice. I'm not trying to minimize that at all. I'm just saying, but pastor, how could the whole world be wrong? Well, did Jesus not say that broad is the gate and broad is the way and wide is the gate that leads to destruction? So if that's true, then what I should expect is that if I see the whole world go in a direction, then it's wrong. They're going the wrong way. And now we're wired to think if everybody else is going this way and these few nut jobs over here are going this way, then the crowd's got to be right. But if I understand what Jesus said, then I'm going to be more inclined to follow the few. It's just common sense. Now the world's common sense, man's logic and way of thinking is follow the crowd. Everybody can't be wrong. Oh, yes, they can be. But Jesus can't be. I'm the way, he said. Listen, my way is narrow. My gate is small. And few there be that find it. And listen, if we understand what God is saying, here's, here's Israel. And they're in a nation of uh, presumably uh, multi-millions and they've got their couple of million people and God leads them out. So what do we see? We see that God's able to provide eternal life. Not only that, but God provides power to live it. Power to live it. What do we need to live it? We need food. We need nourishment. We need guidance. What does God provide for them? He provides Moses and Aaron. What does God provide for them? He provides manna and quail. When they can't find water, he gives them water from a rock at least two occasions. When they find water that's bitter, he makes it sweet. God does everything that they need. God provides everything that they need. He gives them the power to live the life that he has provided for them. Thirdly, we see that he provides their physical needs. So, Pastor, it's a little redundant. Well, it's meeting two different needs, one spiritual and one physical. He gives us the power, the strength, uh, the nourishment to get up and to go and do what he's called us to do. How does he do that? Sometimes he gives it to us through worship. But to them, he gave it to them through a system of sacrifice and, and, and leadership and guidance and providing their material needs on a daily basis in a miraculous way. He is no less providing for us today than he provided for them in their circumstances, just manifesting a little bit differently. He's not plopping manna from heaven, but... I don't know of anybody in here that wouldn't be eating today uh, if you had to spend all your summer out in the field. Uh, and thank God for our farmers and those that go out there, but uh, all we have to do is just pull into a grocery store or place that online order. We've got everything that we can wish for. 
He provides power to live the life that he's called us to. He provides our physical needs. He provides for us. I would say this, that he fourthly, he provides spiritual comfort. He provides our spiritual comfort. There's great peace at knowing that I'm in God's hand and I trust him. And what they're lacking is the ability to trust God. What they're lacking is the ability to have confidence in God. They can't understand how God is going to provide, and so they're worried about not being provided for. And so they complain because they're not getting an answer fast enough. But God is able. He's able to provide. Secondly, we see that God is able to perceive. He's able to perceive. What does he perceive? Well, he perceives, first of all, the motive for our call. You think God doesn't understand their motive? The motive of their complaint? God, you're not living up to my expectation. How many of us get to the point, we would never say those words, but it's essentially what we say with the way that we live. God, you're not meeting my expectations. I'm not growing fast enough. I'm not, you're not providing enough. You've provided the same thing too many times over. When sometimes we need to step back and realize that maybe the problem is not on what God has provided. It's our ungrateful attitude with which we receive it. We look and we consider here that God is able to perceive. God always knows my motive. Understand, I, I may not always understand fully my motive. There have been a lot of times when God's convicted me and I thought that maybe I was approaching something or my motive was pure and God rebuked me because it was self-serving. Whether it be in prayer to Him or whether it be in just everyday life. Uh, what I'm saying is, is that God always knows our motive. What is our motive? What is my motive for taking my need to God in prayer? Is, it, is, it, is my motive to just complain because I'm mad about it or I'm not happy with it or I'm ungrateful for it? Or is my motive pure? Secondly, I would say that God sees the sincerity of our Lord. I believe that's manifested throughout our text this morning as God is evaluating them, the people and Moses and what he's doing and working in their life. That God understands the motive of their call and God sees the sincerity of their walk. He's not happy because he can see that they are not sincerely loving him with all of their heart, mind, and soul as he's commanded them to do. And that's the essence of the problem here. God, you're not loving me. You want me to love you with all of my being, but you're not giving me everything I want. In essence, they're just spoiled children. And if we're not careful, we don't want to get, we want to be careful to not in our own Christian life and our own spiritual development get locked in a mode of just being nothing more but spoiled brats to God throughout our adult life, lifetime because we cannot grow beyond this type of thing in our Christian walk. I'm not trying to be harsh or unkind this morning. I'm just trying to point out the obvious here because there's a great parallel to what they do and what we do without even realizing it. But I'm just saying this morning that I, I can fool myself, but I can never fool God. I can fool you, you can fool me, I can fool myself, you can fool yourself, but none of us can fool God. God knows our motive and the sincerity of our walk. I would say thirdly here that God knows the longing of our heart. The longing of our heart. What do they really want? They just want life to be easy. They want security. They want peace. What they're wanting is what we all want. They're in no man's land. They're transitioning. Hey, listen, transition's scary, especially in adult life. 
And the more responsibility you have, the, the scarier it gets. You're leaving one job to another, leaving a job and not knowing exactly yet where you're going to end up. Those things are burdensome. Those things are heavy burdens at times uh, to carry. What, the, what are they longing for? Well, the longing of their heart should be Jesus. Because in Jesus, they'll find the answer to everything that they believe they're longing for. But ultimately, what they want is they want a home. They want peace. They want prosperity. They want to enjoy the promises that God has communicated that he's given them. The, the problem is, is that God's not given it to them fast enough. And they're not satisfied with the process. And listen, the process of the Christian life is important. And the process happens at a different pace from one believer to another. Not everyone will grow as fast as the next. Some will grow at a slower rate. Some uh, have more to overcome in the life that they live before they found Christ. And I'm just saying this morning that God is able to perceive the longing of my heart. What you are longing for in your heart, God is aware of. And he loves you. And he is able to grow you into it. If you'll trust him and if you'll love him. Thirdly, this morning we see this. First, we see that he's able to provide. He provides for them exactly what they're complaining that they don't have. He's, he's able to perceive. He understands their motive and their action. Then, and in this case, he doesn't like their motive and their action. And he rebukes it and he punishes it. Uh, and then thirdly, we see that he's able to perfect. What's he doing here in their lives? What is God accomplishing in the nation of Israel through this process. He's perfecting them. He is transforming them from a people that have been enslaved to a people that will be fierce warriors taking the land that he has promised to give them. He's transforming them from being a people that have been, have been crushed and have been tormented and he's, he's transitioning them into a people that have freedom and that have love and that make an impact in the lives of those around them. And I would say three things about this, his ability to perfect this morning that I believe that we see in the nation of Israel. First, I would say that he is able to transform my life. He is able to transform my life. He is able to take me from darkness to light. He's able to take me from bondage to freedom. He's able to take me across uncharted territory and to lead me and to grow me and develop me. I would say secondly, that in addition to that, that as he is transforming my inner man, he is shaping my outer man. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says, but we are for we are his workmanship. He is working. He is molding. He's the analogies in scripture given where he's the potter and we're the clay. He, what's that say? He says that he's shaping our lives. The transformation of our life begins with salvation. It begins with the transformation of the inner man. And I would say this morning that the transformation of the inner man leads to the reshaping of the outer man. If God changes who I am here, it will impact what I am here. Now, I can change the outside all day long, but it's meaningless unless the inside has been transformed. I can change the outside of me, but I can't change the inside of me. That's the supernatural working of God in my heart. We can all uh, put on religiosity when we walk in the doors of a church. We can all put on the airs of Christendom whenever we're going to be with other believers. That's 
not pleasing to God, appealing to God, and it's not something that too many people have a hard time seeing through, except for the person that's trying to fake it. You may be able to fake it till you make it in a lot of things, but you can't fake it till you make it with Jesus. You either have him or you don't. He either has you or he doesn't. He transforms lives, and then when he transforms that life, he begins to shape that life into his own image. And the transformation of the inner man leads to the reshaping of the outer man. There's no uh, ands, ifs, or ors about it. What is, he ultimately, what is God's ultimate goal? And I would say that it's this. Thirdly, here in your notes, it is to be the object of my heart. What does God want to be? God wants to be the object of my affection. God wants to be the reason that I live. God wants to, he wants me to love him with my heart, my soul, my mind, my body, everything that I am and that I have, God wants me to love him with. He wants to be the object and the desire of my heart. So we see this morning that through their complaints and God's leadership and Moses' complaint slash prayer, God's rebuke and God's provision for them in the midst of this, uh, that he is able to provide for them, that he is able to perceive the reality of who they and what they are internally, that he's able to perfect them, to not just say, okay, I perceive what you are, and that's a shame because I can't do anything about it. No, he says, I recognize exactly what you are, and I know how to change you into what you should be. And that's what God is working on here. Then I would say this, that he's able to produce that God is able to produce. He produces the quail. He produced the manna. He had produced the fresh water. He had produced the parting of the sea. He had produced the freedom and the liberation from Egypt. He is able to produce. What does he produce? Well, three things here that I believe that God wants to do to accomplish that ultimate goal of, being, of him being the object of our heart. Three thoughts here. First, to produce his love in my heart. What does God want to do? He has to produce my love in my heart. His love in my heart. Listen, I, I really... I'm at a point where I, I don't think that we have a lot of ability to do that on our own. We say things all the time like, and I and I, we look for this in new believers, and we look for this in old believers that have been away from the Lord. And what do we say? We say we need to learn to love the Word of God. We need to learn to love the preaching of God's Word. Those are great, truthful statements. Those things impact our lives, and they reveal to us who God is. But I really do believe that in my sincerity to know God, that God is the one that makes it happen in my heart. It can't be self-manufactured. The, the object of my heart, the goal of my life cannot be, I'm just going to hunker down and I'm just going to stick my nose in the Bible and I'm going to read it until I love it. There are a lot of books that I can read from morning till night for all of my life and I'll hate it more by the time I get done with it than I did when I started there are a lot of things that just have no appeal to me. I can't manufacture a love for God. But I can get to know Him. And as I get to know Him, and as I spend time with Him, I learn to open myself up to Him. And as I open myself up to him and make myself vulnerable to him, and God's spirit begins to work in my heart, and God begins to bring 
change in my life and as God meets my needs and God cares for me and God instructs me and God grows me, then the ultimate result is going to be that I am going to love him with all of my heart. Why? Because the people in your life that have impacted your life are the people that you love most. We <coughs> have to understand that what we all intuitively want, even if you're someone like me that's pretty much an introvert and a loner a lot of times, what we really want is to feel loved and wanted and invested in. And the person that we feel like can break through even our hardened facade and accomplish that is the person that we feel we can give all of our heart to. That's what God does. That's what God does in our life. God is able to produce in my heart a love for him that I could never produce on my own no matter how much I think I want. I have to yield to him. I have to let him work. We see that God produces influence through our lives. God produces influence in our lives. I, it's with great joy that I look about our church and I look and look at different folks and there's a few of them that I'm thinking of that are missing today. Uh, but, but I can look at someone in the church that God has used to influence or impact their life. I rejoice and praise God for that. In some cases, I might be that person. In other cases, I'm not that person at all. It was someone else that God used within uh, within Victory Baptist Church to, to reach through to them and to reach out to them and to kind of grow them and groom them and lead them along in their life. But how does that happen? Because God produced influence through your life into the life of someone else. I can't impose influence on anyone, and neither can you. But God can institute a relationship that's effective enough to where Influence carries through. To what end? Thirdly, I would say to produce fruit on our branch. To produce fruit on my branch. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be bearing fruit. But the reality is, is that I'm just a branch. If I understand the whole principle of John 15, the binding in Christ and the binding in the branches, if I'm going to realize and understand really what he's teaching there, it is this, is that uh, it is that Jesus is divine. And he wants fruit. I'm just a branch. I'm worthless unless I'm attached to the vine. But I'm equally worthless unless I allow the Holy Spirit of God to flow through me. And the Holy Spirit is like the sap that goes through the vine that produces the fruit in our lives. What can I do to produce fruit? Nothing. I can't do anything at all except hang on to the vine and allow the Spirit of God to flow through. And when I'm willing to do that, God is able to produce fruit. Let me ask you, what do you think God's trying to do with Israel? Saving them from bondage? He's trying to get them as quickly as is possible to the land that he's promised. They're on track. In a couple of chapters, they're going to be knocking on the door of the promised land. Moses is going to send out the spies. And they, they, they fail to learn their lesson here. Because not only do they go in and all of them except for 
Joshua and Caleb come back and say that it can't be done, that when Joshua and Caleb stand up and say, hey, listen, if this is what God has promised and this is what God is going to deliver, the congregation jumped up and screamed, stone them with stones. They're still struggling with this. Though God has provided. Listen, let's not be Israel when it comes to the slowness with which we learn our lesson. Let's not, when God wants to work in our heart, jump up and say, let's stone them with stones. The the giants in the land are too great. Let's realize that the promises of God are enormous and they're phenomenal and they can be beyond our comprehension. But the promises of God are God's to deliver, not ours to carry. He must do it. He must work. And when we get to the place where we say, okay, God, uh, I'm in need. Will you provide? Uh, God, my attitude needs some work. Uh, God, I need to be perfected and transformed, but I'm not sure that if I I can change myself, God says you can't change yourself, but I can change you. And when we get to the point where we want to trust in self and where we lose trust in God, we need to come back to the point where we realize that God is standing up and saying, as he said unto Moses, is the Lord's hand waxed short. Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass into thee or not. Because I'm just going to tell you this morning that God always keeps his word. That God always does what he says he's going to do. That God always keeps his promises. And no matter how much I doubt, how much I wonder, he may get angry at my complaining or at my doubt. But at the end of the day, God will keep his word. Because he's able. He's able. There's not anything that God's promised us that he can't deliver. I need, not, I need not go to bed one single night the rest of my life wondering whether I'm going to spend eternity in heaven or hell because God said that if I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, repenting of my sin, that I am forgiven and that I have been birthed into his family and it's settled. It's sealed for all of eternity. I don't have to worry about that anymore. I really, I feel sorry for people sometimes that can never get that settled in their life. They live their life wondering whether they're going to make it or not. But you don't have to wonder that because God's already settled it. God's already made it clear. He's able. God's able to save. God's able to keep me safe. God's able to forgive me when I fail. God's able to transform me when I need to be changed. God's able to rebuke me when I need to be rebuked. God's able to lift me up when I need to be lifted up. God's able to take care of everything that I'll ever need. And he did it for Israel. He's been doing it all of these years. He's been doing it for millennia. And he'll do it today. He loves you. Why? I don't know why he loves us, but he does. And he said he does. And he promised he does. And he said, I'll transform you. And I'll shape you. And I'll bless you. And I'll use you. And when I feel like not how in the world would you ever use me, I just need to sit back and remember that no matter how much I fail, he is able.